The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. Joined today by guests as usual, C.L. Mitchell and John Corr. We will be uh, looking at uh, post-creation narrative. We have reached uh, Genesis 5. We're going to be talking about the descendants of Adam. John Corsio Mitchell, good day to you. Good day. Good day. Which of you gentlemen would like to begin the program uh, by giving a, a general overview, overview uh, of this chapter, please? Uh, I'll give it a shot. Um, so Genesis 5, we um, come to a, a very exciting chapter of a genealogy of Adam. And, and at first glance, it does seem like something you would want to skip over. But in actual fact, there's a lot of um, uh, rich and important things in this chapter. Well, can, can we skip, skip over it anyway? Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we don't really want to because there's, we have to ask the question, why is this chapter here? Why does Moses go through the pain of, of writing down all these names? And um, when we ended chapter 4, and, and during chapter 4, we saw that, that mankind's sin had grown. And the highlight here in chapter 4 was was Cain. You know, um, At the end of chapter 4, we have a, a, a sort of a promise or a hope that comes in. That's the birth of Seth, who, uh, who Eve says, hey, this is my, I've got a, a child from, from the Lord uh, who will replace Abel. And in her mind, and perhaps in the people's mind, the expectation that God's promise from Genesis 3.15 would be kept alive through this newborn child named Seth. So what you have in chapter 5 is, is a genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah through Seth. Okay, So whereas on one hand mankind was really, really corrupt in chapter 4, here there's a breath of fresh air. There's a new beginning, so to speak, uh, with chapter 5. And what he does here in chapter 5 is he begins with Adam, talks about how Adam is made in God's likeness, and then talks about how, how he has uh, Seth born his own image. Seth will bear the image of Adam. He will be sinful. But yet at the same time, uh, God will highlight uh, within the line of Seth individuals that will keep righteousness alive and keep his promise alive. So that's kind of what's going to go on. He's going to start with Adam through Seth. Uh, and end with Noah, and that will bring us to chapter 6, which is the beginning of the flood narrative. Is there any reason why this genealogy was placed at this stage in the Bible? Yeah, it's, p- perhaps it is, for one thing, is to show that, that the, the sin and corruption that has infested mankind is not without hope. It's not without God keeping a remnant of sorts, a righteous remnant, to keep his promise alive. You know, it's like uh, in uh, in our world today, there are those who, uh, there are many people who don't believe in God or don't follow God, but yet God always preserves and keeps those who, who follow him. So part of the purpose here is to show that he is keeping his promise alive because it's going to be through Seth and ultimately through Noah and through one of Noah's descendants, Shem, through whom we have the Hebrew nation come through the Semites. 
So he's, he's tracing this all down, that, that God's promise uh, was, was kept alive. And also in chapter 5, we also have uh, his promise, which he made to Adam and Eve, that you know, if you eat from this tree, back in Genesis uh, uh, 2, you will surely die. Here, this promise is shown to be kept true. In other words, they died. No matter how long these people lived, and they lived a very long time, they all died. And to show that, um, uh, except for uh, except for Enoch, which we'll talk about in a little bit, that that God's word came true with uh, respect to uh, uh, His promise in Genesis uh, to chapter two. So part of this is to show that uh, this chapter that uh, that the world was is going to become more corrupt, and you'll see this in chapter six and see how how corrupt mankind gets. But God has uh, keeps uh, the righteous for Himself, and this is what uh, part of what chapter five is there for. C.O. Mitchell, uh, starting off with verse 1, then, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Is there a reason why uh, that has been uh, repeated again over the first chapter, uh, referring this, uh, he made him in the likeness of God? The reason for, uh, for uh, placing that out again? Yes, yeah, so let me just review um, the literary structure that has been present to a, presented to us in Genesis one twenty six. What we have there is a fanciful uh, interpretive word that we refer to as a hendiades, so that the two words, uh, image and likeness, can be mutually defining one, progressing the definition of the other, but also speaking intelligently and in a more full-orbed concept of the other. This repetitious concept, if you will, is going to go on throughout Scripture so that when you see it in the earliest stages of Genesis, you'll see both words used, you'll see the order reversed on the words, you'll see one word used instead of the other so that they can in fact be used interchangeably with the idea of both really standing in mind in the hearers uh, thinking in that uh, early um, audience's thinking and certainly in the interpreters thinking but why is this mentioned I think that what we're going to have here is uh, an import, a value placed upon mankind by God that was originally placed on mankind by God in Genesis at the inception of their creation, lady and gentleman. And when God placed that value, he has to rehearse that value because what you're going to see is in chapter number six, you're going to see the devaluation of mankind. But this is going to become a substrate a foundation, if you will, a status quo, not only for the Tanakh, but for the New Testament and for um, human value at large. Let me just kind of give you what that looks like. Uh, If you're looking here at the image of God or the imagio deo or the likeness of God that is presented here, if you just turn over to chapter 9 and verse number 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. In other words, that text is going to become a reason why we are not to murder. If you go over to Colossians in the New Testament, chapter number 3. In Colossians chapter number 3, verses 9 and 10, there's a second reason given. 
Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. In, in other words, this is a reason why we ought not to even lie to one another as believers because of that high value that we have of the imagio deo or of the image of God. If you proceed then from there over to the book of James, if you proceed over to the book of James, chapter number 3, and verses 8 through 10, the text of Scripture says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. In other words, uh, the imagio deo is a reason why we ought not curse or speak ill toward or debase or demean other human beings. So this theme is going to be very um, large indeed, looming over the horizon of our social interaction so that it is the reason why we ought not murder, which in fact we're going to see, um, uh, which is the reason why we ought not lie, which we'll see, which is the reason why we ought not curse. So the repetition of that is going to be a strong repetition that's really going to repeat the foundation of man's value. Man's value comes from God, and so God gets to stipulate the rules on how we deal with one another. We don't get to set those rules for ourselves and walk, walk antithetical to God and thereby walk antithetical to his character and thereby walk antithetical to his image that is housed within man so as to devaluate man and woman accordingly. Wow, John. What can you say to that? Uh, may, maybe, <laughs> maybe that profound statement uh, could just be complemented by answering this question in verse 2, if I may, CL. He created the male and female, and he placed them in them, man in the day when they were created. Going on to that, man in the day when they were created, perhaps you could just emphasize that point there. Perhaps you had, had covered that, but maybe if you could just emphasize man in the day when they were created. Well, verse number two um, is a, an allusion again back to chapter number one. If, if verse number one was an allusion back to chapter number one, certainly verse number two is an allusion back to chapter number one, because if you remember correctly, uh, there was a, a statement that was made in chapter number one, verse number 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the, of the birds of the, of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. If you look then, the reason for the male and female is quintessential and integral to their ability to propagate or procreate within the framework of the race. Yeah, let me just interject or... Uh, comment uh, along with that what he's doing in chapter 5 is he's bringing you back to chapter 1 and God's original purpose for mankind which was of course to uh, oversee uh, taking care of the earth and land to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have life okay this was God's original purpose sin comes in chapter 4 shows the devastations of sin chapter 5 he's, he now will highlight this life that was God's purpose all, in, uh, in, uh, all along in chapter 5. So what he's doing, he's bringing you back and say, 
Lord, chapter four happened with all this corruption and this murder and this and this all this mess, you might say. Chapter five comes in and says, "Yes, but God still keeps His promise, His blessing alive through Adam's other son named Seth." Um, and so this is the linkage he's doing here in chapter 5. He's linking us to God's ultimate plan. Now, here's the thing. is there is a, There's somewhat of a tension here because we see here in chapter 5 that these people lived a very, very long time, hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? So we have this, this and this is God's, you know, God giving life, God giving life. And, and, uh, but at the same time, they all died. So, uh, so but, but you have this God trying to, his intention for creation will be realized through the line of Seth. And that's what his, his focus is here on, too. And let me, just for the listeners, give us uh, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Yes, I, I, if, you're, if you're looking back at the verse, uh, let's work verses 2 and 3 together, because the means by which the blessing of God was carried out was through, we cannot miss it in the verse, the design that God had given humanity in order to carry it out. It is not inconsequential, accidental, or nor coincidental that male and female are mentioned here. So that it is not just human relationship that is mentioned. For human relationship alone will not suffice, nor will it be sufficient to propagate or procreate the race. Rather, it must be, and here's the concepts conveyed through these two terms, it must be the piercer and the one pierced. That's the concept. In other words, what we have is God's structure by which procreation will occur male and female. Now, what you're going to get later on is unnatural attempts to try and propagate the race in the name of, well, God is only into social interaction within a monogamous framework that, uh, that uh, forwards love. Uh, no, that's not what's presented here. What is presented here is the imagio deo gives value to life. The plan of God by way of design gives the procreation of life or the continuity of life. In other words, what you will see now is the obedience of Adam, the first man, with his wife Eve, in fact, a male and a female who will then, within that capacity, one having the piercing instrument, one having the capacity to be pierced, will then be able to have children within the framework of God's design. Uh, Dr. Tackett says, interestingly enough, and I think that it is noteworthy and bears repeating at this moment, if one wants to know where God stands morally on any given issue, look at where modern day society stands concerning that issue and look at the opposite or look on the reverse side and there you will see where God stands. For instance, um, uh, God says... Uh, marriage. Society says we simply live together. God says one man with one woman. Society says, no, it's just a monogamous relationship in which two people, doesn't matter the sex, love each other. And I think within this framework, what he's setting us up for is chapter number six again, because he alludes back to chapter number one to set us up for chapter number six, because the order of how God has designed things is going to take a very horrendous turn now. But when he's designed things in 
in this way. What we have in chapter number five is an awareness of the clause of death repeated, but we also have an awareness of the gift and grace of life realized when the pattern and the plan of God is set forth in the appropriate way. And just before your response to that, John, if I may, so I keep us uh, keep us on, on track. I'll, I'll give us verse four, and then you can continue. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. Wow! Can you imagine <laughs> living eight hundred more years? And <laughs> well, the social security system would be in a mess. I mean, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, it would be well beyond bankrupt. <laughs> uh, a couple things. Uh, I told you I'd bring politics. That's right. <laughs> so, Adam, what do you think about the health care bill? <laughs> I'm for it. I need my I need my prescription medicine to keep me alive another hundred years. Now, um, seriously, um, uh, what's interesting is uh, a couple things. Um, the question of you know how in the world does he live this long? Um, you know, we're not used to that. We're used to maybe people living 100, you know, maybe. 120 years, if, if you know, maybe the most, but usually 80, 80 years, maybe 100 years, but several hundred years. Uh, it could be for one for one thing that man, first of all, was designed to live, and here we are, you know, the the uh, the um, far after the creation of man, he is still he is still living, um, he is he is st- he is st- still living, uh, though dying, but. A man was uh, was not designed to die. You know, man was designed to live, and so here we have before the flood, we have um, a, these people living a long time. Um, the other thing I want to point out in chapter in, in verse four uh, is the fact that Adam had other sons and daughters uh, that we don't stru- we don't talk about because the biblical writer is not focusing on them because he's trying to tie the Hebrew nation all the way back to Adam. And show how how God's plan from Genesis chapter three was kept alive all along. With that said, though, there must be an underlying reason why a, a an author would mention that. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> probably for one thing, just to show that um, that uh, that life and that earth was not just a bunch of uh, descendants of Cain and descendants of Seth. Uh, Adam was was still continuing God's um, purpose and plan of. Filling and multiplying, filling the earth, you know, being fruitful and multiplying. Um, but here the writer is just focusing our attention on Seth, which uh, the writer uh, tends to do throughout this whole book, is focusing our attention on one particular family or one particular person. And here now, obviously, Seth, whose, whose name means appointed. Uh, he is appointed for something. He is going to uh, be perhaps a man of faith uh, because it's during his time that men began to call out upon the name of God in contrast to uh, the rest of the world who uh, live for themselves and, and uh, did not uh, call out on God's name uh, or did not walk with, uh, with God. I think it's also interesting to point out that again, uh, these illusions cannot be missed. Uh, already, Moses, as a master weaver, is uh, sewing together a a thick plot for us. Um, because why is the longevity of life essential at this point? Why Genesis one, the mandate to fill the earth, makes that. Uh, important. Uh, you've got to remember, we're not talking about society as it is now. We're talking about a few people on the earth that are are 
essentially in need of living long so that they can begin to propagate um, not only children and families, but clans and society as we know it. Second, on a scientific scale, I think on a scientific scale, it's Dr. Carl Baugh that actually um, looked at the pre-Noaic or pre-Diluvian um, uh, flood situation and uh, or, or the flood situation. He looked at the earth as it was before then. And in looking at that, he noted that the canopy was a lot thicker so that oxygenation was a lot better. Uh, we were not poisoned with the piercing of the ozone layer as we are now. As such, we were not as harmed by UV rays. As such, the oxygenation allowed for greater um, intelligence in our capacity. I mean, a, a child, when he or she is born now, is smarter in the womb uh, than they are when they are extracted from the womb because due to lack of oxygenation and due to the pressurization from birth itself coming through the birth canal, it's not only stressful, but literally somewhere around a billion brain cells die. Even psychologists will agree and uh, physicians will agree that uh, we only use approximately uh, five to 10% of the brain's capacity now. And so when you're talking about this, uh, you're looking at a world that was conducive for longevity. In fact, Dr. Carl Baugh actually had a patent on a uh, an instrument wherein he was able to take fruit flies and reproduce in a controlled environment, if you will. Uh, we'll call it a caged environment, just for familiarity of, of language. Uh, in this environment, he was able to reproduce a very highly oxygenated environment wherein he was able to uh, lengthen or elongate the lives of first generational fruit flies by three or four times. So Adam within this environment and others within this environment, not only with the will of God, but with the grace of God and with the conducive environment, they certainly would have been able to live a longer time. But why does God allow them to live a longer time? I think what he's going to argue in chapter number six is going to be the antithesis of what we should see now. Later on, he's going to say, uh, my spirit will not always strive with man. So what we see here is a depiction of the patience of God willing to endure man, even though mankind is becoming progressively more evil. Is this indicative in the story of Sarai, the way that she has a child when so terribly old? That was a miraculous event. Secondarily, not only was that a miraculous event, but they were allowed to live again. What would be indicative of Sarai, and she did not live, and Abraham did not live as long as they lived in this period, but that long span of time certainly is indicative of an environment that was more conducive to living longer and the grace of God to live longer. But something else should be said here, and I think we ought to just stop and postulate over this for a moment. And here it is, gentlemen. Um, and, and I think our audience should think over this. Remember, Adam has just seen his second son murdered by his first son. And already for Adam, the world is not getting better. It's getting progressively worse. So when we talk about, oh, how interesting it was to live 930 years, here's a question. How horrible would it have been to have lived for 930 years with the consequences of what you had done? By the way, let us remember that Adam was not created a baby. He was created a full-grown man. So for every stage of his lengthy life, he had full intelligence. He was able to see the madness of what he had set forth in the planet due to his disobedience to God. 
That has to, I mean, imagine this. Has anyone in our audience, in our listening audience, or amongst us here in this studio, ever made a decision that you've lived to regret? Never. (laughs) Can, can Can you fathom living 100 years, 200, 500 years, 700 years, and just watching as your great, great, great grandchildren make you regret your decision against God? He must have been very pleased at the end of that 930 years. Hardly, because according to the biblical record, if we are to follow its chronology, it is highly probable that he lived within a few hundred years of the flood. Yeah. So that, Josephus says this in extra-biblical writing, he says that having known where the Garden of Eden originally was, but not being allowed to go therein, he would oft go to one of the rivers proceeding outside the garden and bathe himself in the river. There is perhaps a reason why God uh, didn't allow Adam to reach the flood. Uh, perhaps I mean it. It would really would have been too much, wouldn't it? Because it would have been um, telling Adam, "This is all your work. This is this this flood is is your work. This is what you have created here." So perhaps God gave him a break. Well, I, I think I think uh, Adam began to see how bad it, his descendants would become. I mean, just through. Cain's children and children, his great great grandchildren on, on, on Cain's side, he's probably remembering how it was back in the garden, how it was fellowshipping with God, and seeing on the one hand his his son Cain and how his progeny are living. Um, he didn't have to go to the to get to the flood to realize just how bad it could get and would get. So now comes in the birth of Seth, who takes place for Abel. And there's probably great and at least somewhat of hope because, yes, there's a regret in his life, but God provides hope that the situation is not entirely uh, grave, you might say, um, but that God, um, God has an answer to his sin. Yes, you know, sometimes you, you can look back at your life and say, I wish I, you know, you can always live with regret. But then you say, well, where can God come in and where has he come in? To offer a, a, a hope in the situation. Yes, I'm, the mistakes have been made, the sins have, have been committed, but God can bring something great out of a terrible situation. And here, He does that. And I think in the rest of the chapter, we we, we look at the, the rest of these lives, and especially certain lives, um, there is a reminder of that hope. Uh, yes, He uh, He lived a long time. Uh, he He remembered the guard, remembered the life. Uh, but there's still a promise that God's promise will ultimately come true, that he will ultimately rectify the evil that has come in this world. And that's probably another thing that keeps him going as well. We're, we're doing so well here. We're still on verse 4. <laughs> yeah. I think I can truncate yes. some of the verses in a summarization just really quick. If, may, I, may I just ask this question of you, though? Going back to verse 4. It says, then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Why was it that it wasn't then the days of Eve? Why is it, is, why is it talking about Adam as having these other sons and daughters and not referring to Eve as, as being the mother? 
Well, earlier, um, uh, it does refer to Eve earlier when Adam names her Eve. We don't know what her um, um, naming was or her stipulation beside woman was before uh, the fall. It's after the fall that he actually names her Eve in hope, the mother of all living. So first of all, he does refer to her uh, earlier. But at this particular time in this societal context, we're dealing with a patriarchal-focused society. Society. Secondarily, and of course this is not an attempt to be bigotrist or, or to be anti-feminist, if you will, but uh, that is the context of this time, not a bigotrist or a feminist one, but certainly a patriarchal society. Uh, more than this, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with a story by means of the narrator that has a purpose. And within the framework of the overall redemptive purpose and within the framework of the guilty purpose, uh, it is Adam who's held guilty for the fall ultimately and finally. Uh, that is by the pen of Paul. Uh, that is, of course, uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse number 12, the text of Scripture says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed over us all, because all have sin. And the Bible again says, Where all as in one man or as in Adam all die. Um, it is in the second Adam that all may live, if you will. And I'm paraphrasing these verses deliberately, but the concept is that he is given ultimate responsibility. Uh, Paul says it was the woman that was deceived, not Adam. Adam deliberately made a choice to go rogue against God, if you will. So there are several purposes for why he's focused on. So it's not to the abashment or embarrassment or to um, uh, forego Eve as much as it is to not only indict Adam, but also to suggest that at this point, Adam is that means by which the race of humanity is being propagated, and also it is through Adam that we're going to, when we get to Luke, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is going to be run back to the first Adam, because the first Adam was the fault of the fall. The second Adam is the source of salvation or life. If you look at these verses... I was going to ask, though. (laughs) Yes. Um... And yet at the beginning it was Eve who, who took the bite of that apple. Yes. But she's not held responsible, though. Because but she's not held, held responsible. Yeah. And, and, and obviously Eve is... I mean, is that not a paradox here? I mean, Eve is basically... Uh, basically pushed into the background and the responsibility as we see here in Genesis 5 is is plainly planted upon Adam as being that part. Yes, that's not totally true though that she's not held responsible. She is held responsible or we would not have a curse handed to her. I think I'm... I but think she's I'm, not ultimately as the head or leader held responsible. It's what we call in theological set, uh, circles either federal headship or seminal, seminal headship. Yeah. And I would probably Probably, uh, um, uh, find myself on the side of seminal headship, but the point really? to be made is <laughs> the point to be made is that Adam was the one who was given the command. Adam, uh, the woman was made in Genesis for the man, not man for the woman. He has a responsibility as being the kephale, as being the source, if you will. And in having a responsibility as being the, the source, it is ultimately and finally he who God holds responsible for the fall. Second, she was tricked. He was not tricked. Third, not only was he given the command, if you will, but the term says, the phrase in the text says, she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. In other words, it is highly 
probable that she he probably just watched this whole thing occur and then gave credence or credulity to it. So there's a bigger yeah. picture going yeah, on here. One more thing is 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 this whole chapter is still a testimony to Eve because through Eve the life of all mankind comes as well. You know, through her descent. She, so she's the the mother of all living. You know, well said. You know, so it's. She's there in the background, so to speak. It's still a testimony to God's promise. Let's go on because we're stuck in chapter. Yeah, you see me. <laughs> and verse four. Let, let, let's yeah. Let let me ask one of you gentlemen. Can we go? Can we summarize uh, verse six through perhaps twenty, uh, leading up to the time of Enoch? Um, who, who would like to take that on? Let me give that summarization just really quick, and then uh, I'll let you take Enoch. I, I think that summarization will be helpful for this reason, because I know that if I were reading this text and our audience is reading this text, they're wondering why Adam lived, or if this is just kind of hyperbole, or if this is bogus, that the text says in summarization that he lived 930 years, that Seth lived 912, that Enosh lived 905, Kenan 910, Mahalalel 895, um, Yared 969. Uh, uh, um, uh, I, I wondered how you pronounced all those names. <laughs> I know now. E- Enoch 365, Methuselah 960. And, um, uh, you know, you have all of these years finally, and the question is, okay, and and, and Noah, by the way, um, 600 years at the beginning of the flood and then 950 in total. Now, come on, is that possible? Well, first of all, let's say this. The Bible is not the only material that makes this um, 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 assertion. There are extra-biblical dependable um, documents that argue for the life of kings at this time or sovereigns or rulers and it actually dates them as being elongated. Actually those other those other ones um, date their kings thousands of years like one king lives for like 24,000 years and so, but the idea is that that people lived a long time is not uncommon. Uh, it's probably exaggerating those other sources. Uh, perhaps uh, just uh, just for the sake of the the audience, uh, one of you gentlemen, could you just uh, define? And I know we're going forward, but maybe it's a good landmark to to uh, to look at uh, when God decided to uh, bring uh, the the uh, age span of people down to the the, the the ages that we that we are now or we were for the last hundred yeah, years. Yeah, that, that has to do with the flood. The conditions of the world changed after the flood. Before the flood, the only thing that changed with Adam and Eve and the rest of the sons are they, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. The structure of the earth, the atmosphere was the same uh, up until the time of the flood. At the time of the flood, uh, the atmosphere somehow changed. The, the water canopy that protected the people on the earth came down. Um, everything changed, so so uh, so that's the hinge point of which where we begin to see, even biblically, the lives of people living shorter and shorter lives. What would what would God uh, be seeking there? I mean, if we look at our lifespans today, we'd know that as we get older, we uh, develop uh, that that old lost phrase, common sense. And we develop wisdom. Uh, how is it that God had decided at this stage that it was worth uh, reducing your 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 lifespan, um, but but also in in maintaining or, or building that wisdom, that that common sense that people have? I think first of all, 
it's within the framework of the wisdom of God to uh, reduce the lifespan. Any length of life is a gift of God, and it shows the grace of God. But secondarily, in reducing it, from God's perspective, can you imagine allowing sin to go on that long? Yeah. I mean, if we do the horrendous things that we do within the abbreviated time that we have, um, it's difficult. By the way, um, the term Abel or Evel is a clue to humanity. No matter how long we're living, his name means breath or vapor. There is a brevity to life outside of the will of God and due to the fall. Um, I also think that um, scientifically within a fallen world, uh, people always want to get aggravated at God and say, I can't believe my grandmother died um, at the age of 70-something. Hey, listen, here's the reality. Within a fallen world, God is being honest with you. Um, When we jettison from God, death is not only probable, Possible, but it is inevitable in a world where the fall has taken place. So it doesn't matter how it comes. It can come at various stages. It can come when we're young. It can come when we're middle age. We can, it can come when we're old. It can come from no causes. It can come from a major heart attack or etc. I mean, death is promised to the race. The Bible says this clearly. It is appointed unto all men once to die and after that the judgment. The sentence of death since Genesis 3 is upon man. But here's the promise and the hope that John has been pointed out. That death relieves us from the maladies of this fallen condition if we are in Christ and it ushers us into a state that is relieved of and free of uh, what we have to go through. We don't have to go through cancer again once we've gone through that bout on this side, if you will. Um, I think something else to point out is, and this is really important, it's not the longevity of life that teaches us the value of life. This will trip you out, but if you go to Psalm 90, Moses is the same author of that psalm, and in Psalm 90, he says in uh, uh, um, uh, verse number um, 3, You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. That's a euphemism for death. In the morning, they are like grass, which sprouts anew. Isaiah says, uh, the people are like grass that withers. What's the concept? This is actually what Moses argues. He says, if you want to know the value of life, remember how short life is because it's the value of life, the finiteness of life that reminds us that since we won't live long, we better make the best of what we're going to live and live it in the highest form of value. I mean, just, to inter- just to interject, many people today are looking for ways to live longer, right? We're looking for the fountain of youth, you know. Like, there, there's an awful lot of them up at the Scottsdale Air Park here in Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <There's, laughs> seriously. I, I, I walk past there every night. <clears throat> yeah. yes. What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, people are trying to escape death. You know, whether it's, you know, having your, your head frozen or something, you know, or having your, you know, uh, whatever it is, eating organically or, or getting this surgery or that. Guess what? Here, the fact of the matter is you're going to die. Okay. If, even if you live 900 years, guess what? Death's still caught up with Adam and the rest of them. Okay. So the fact is God is saying your life, for, life is limited. Our, the days of our, our lives are numbered. Um, that sounds like a 
it sounds like a commercial for 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 a, for soap opera, but they but it's true. Our days are numbered. These we are don't the days and we don't lives. know how long we will live. <clears throat> we try. Yes, it's important to to eat right and exercise, and that's very good. Taking care of of uh, of of our bodies, but ultimately, the thing we should be preparing for is that final day, the day that that every that. Nobody can escape death and taxes. That that's that's so true of, of wherever you live in the world. That's going to happen. And the point is here in chapter five, we're going to meet two people that, in one sense, escaped death. One escaped Enoch. The other one was preserved through a lot of death. But the point is, is that um, no matter how how hard you try, what you do, it's the days are still numbered. And so the question is, what do you do with those days? What do you do with knowing that we're not even promised tomorrow? I'm not even promised tonight. So what do I do? Because, you know, so what, the average age is maybe 70 or 80 or whatever it is. That doesn't guarantee me uh, those years. So how do I prepare? How do I live my life in such a way that uh, it's meaningful? And secondly, uh, you know, I'm in the right position with God. Okay. um, We're running out of time here. I'd less like to look and focus act uh, verse 22, then Enoch walked with God. Okay. Would you be able to clarify that? Sure. Uh, give us an explanation, uh, because I think I'm right in saying, uh, CL, that this is probably the first time that this statement is made or referred to to, in, to an individual. Yeah, actually, Enoch walked with God, and you'll meet Noah in the same chapter who walked with God, but he is the first person who not only is talking about walking with God. Let me just give you a little, in the midst of this, of this chapter that's full of life and full of death, you meet somebody who does not die. His name is Enoch, uh, and he, uh, he, it says he walked with God. The, the Hebrew indicates a devotional life, and, and, uh, one that is uh, devoted to God, who walks with God in close communion with him. Um, and that's his lifestyle. So it's not talking about him actually dying and being with God. It's talking, oh, about, it's talking about him being I, with God on this earth. Well, first thing is how he lived his life. He lived his life by walking with God, walking, communion with God. As a result of that, it's, uh, it says he walked with God and he was not, uh, for God took him. And Hebrews talks about how God, how he did not die, how Enoch did not die. So the, the, the teaching here, the implication, the principle here, is is the contrast between those who walk away from God, the result being death, and those who walk with God, the result being life. And the other thing is that though death is common to to all men, it can it, it does not have to be the end of the story. God can conquer death. God can can cause somebody uh, who will you know who will die physically to go on with him as well. Enoch is the first person who is, in one sense. Um, translated or raptured away uh, he is a picture of the church who maybe that maybe got raptured away but he because of his life is walks uh, with God he's also a, he's also called a, a prophet in the New Testament a preacher of righteousness you might say or a preacher of proclaiming uh, in uh, the book of uh, of Jude uh, talks about that so uh, he is this picture of somebody who who God preserves or God takes out this, uh, um, and says death does not have to happen for you and that's a promise we have in, in Christ uh, though we die physically, Jesus, you know, tells us that that spiritually we will be with Him for those who are in Christ. So um, that's that's a little bit about Enoch uh, that God took him, and he's a unique individual. He's only one of the uh, one of two people who did not die. Uh, Elijah is the other one. Elijah was taken up into the 
by a chariot in, uh, into heaven. And that goes the first one. But that's interesting. He's um, and this early on that God decides to take him away. He's separated by a chariot and taken up in a whirlwind uh, into the presence of God. Um, I, I, I want to make mention, because if, if, if our readers look at these names, you could almost say that these are the sleeping pills of the Bible, right? Because you look at these genealogy, um, the genealogies that appear here, and you could say, well, okay, and what difference does that make? Well, first of all, let's not discount them. Names make a difference to everyone. For instance, if you were to sit now and um, um, forge a list of names of family and friends, uh, any common individual might particularly read those names, and they would be inconsequential to that individual, but they would be consequential to you because they have stories behind them. They have meanings behind them. And so I think we need to realize and respect that these are real people whose real stories are recorded in the text of Scripture. But secondarily, God does not just waste space within the framework of Scripture. Interestingly enough, uh, the Torah has several several levels to it. And when you're studying the Torah, um, uh, there are messages that God has placed within. Now, I'm not suggesting mysticism here, um, uh, but I'm not suggesting mythical, magical concepts wherein we do uh, fortune-telling by means of the Word of God. But I will say, as we look over things, Linguistically and in an academic or scholastic manner, we can find that there are little nuggets that are wrapped within the pages of Scripture that, in fact, were hidden among those early societies that they didn't even see. But as you look at them in hindsight, you really do realize the sagacity of God and you realize the overall message that God is conveying. So let's take these names for a moment. And just consider them. For instance, the name Adam from Adama uh, means man, or it can mean um, uh, ground or earth, if you will. Uh, Haaretz, or the earth, is is specific, but uh, dirt or or Adam can mean man or dirt, if you will, or mankind or humanity. But specifically, the term Adam means man. If you look at Seth, uh, the term means appointed. Enosh, uh, the term means interestingly enough, mortal, frail, or miserable. You get to Kenan, and Kenan means sorrow, dirge, or elegy, if you will. Now, if you're listening, keep track of the meanings of these names as, as he's reading. Man, appointed, sorrow. <laughs> yes. Mahalalel uh, means blessed or praised. Yared uh, means shall come down. Uh, Enoch means uh, teaching or commencement. Methuselah is interesting because it means in the day when he dies or at the time when he dies. And when you get to Noah or Noah, it means rest. So go back and think about these names. And here's what you have. Man is appointed misery or frailty or mortality and sorrow with Kenan. But Mahalalel, there's going to be a blessing or praise shall come down, Yared, and it's going to come down with teaching. It's going to have a commencement of teaching. But when you get to Methuselah, in the time that he dies, 
or when he dies, Noah, God is going to grant rest. By the, by the way, I think ironically, it's interesting to think of these two facts. When did the flood start? The, the year that, that Methuselah died. died. And what occurred with all of the noisiness of this sin, God gave rest. It's also interesting to think of this fact that Adam was a contemporary of Noah's father, Lamech, for 46 years. It's also interesting to think that Enoch was born in Adam's 622nd year. Methuselah was born in Adam's 687th year. And this concept of when he dies was really a walking, living, breathing prophecy that though the wheels of justice turn slowly, They grind exceedingly fine. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. And later on in 2 Peter, what is argued is, in these later days, and I think it's just important to turn there to make this really relevant for our audience. If you look over at 2 Peter, chapter number 3, Verse number three, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, God hasn't stopped sin and really taken governance and sovereignty over sin and and repaid evil with justice. Everything goes on as it has. And so the, the, the idea conveyed is, and so why shouldn't we continue to be uh, diabolical? Well, continue to read. For when they maintain this, verse 5, it escapes that their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. In other words, what escapes their thinking is God may have taken a long time to judge the world before, but when he did it, boy, did he do it, and he did it by the section that we're getting ready to entertain, Genesis 6 through 9, the flood. And so the concept is, and I'm going to skip a few verses and go down to verse number 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. He's not trying to give us a concept of time. He's trying to tell us concerning the patience of God and also the severity of God realized in a, from a long perspective in man's thinking, but from a short perspective in God's estimation. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why does God wait so long to mete out judgment? Here's your answer not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And isn't that the reason for this elongated uh, forbearance of God and him not immediately judging man's sin? It certainly is, because God wanted more to be saved, not just the eight that were on the ark. And, and, it's, and, and it's a beautiful picture of, of not only the gospel here in these very names. Man is appointed to sorrow. Um, and yet, at the same time, but later on, he will appoint rest for those who are in Christ. And of his patience, that during the time of Noah, which we'll get to obviously next week in chapter 6, Noah spent over 100 years 
building this boat and preaching to the people of this time, and they ignored him. And and God did not. God kept back the floodwaters, so to speak, for for hundreds for over a hundred years. But then Jesus says to us in the Gospels that talking about his return, uh, and it says in chapter in chapter seventeen of Luke, he says, "Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man." They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were get, being given marriage until the day that Noah entered the, dark, the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, they were living their lives as normal, not having a, a care in the world, not realizing that here's Noah building this ark in a place where it had never rained, in a place where there was no flooding, and he was declaring to them that this flood would come. Enoch beforehand was declaring uh, that God was going to judge the world. And the world in Noah's time is taken by surprise. They did not believe him. They did not. They thought he was crazy, and they did not expect God to do what Noah said he would do. So here, and they said, "Well, how come God hasn't done it yet?" Well, God's been patient. We thank God that He has not, uh, in one sense, He has not unleashed any wrath on this world because He is allowing more people to come into to His family. You know. So anyway. Uh, the, the notions today, people don't think about uh, perhaps the end of the world. They think about themselves. They think about uh, our business and, and, and politics and think about our own, you know, our own situations in our lives. But Jesus says when, it, when he comes back, it's going to be the same way. People are going to be surprised. Uh, they're gonna, it's going to come on them suddenly, and they're not going to realize what hit them. And here all along, here in days of Noah, he's been building this ark as a testimony to what's going to happen. And the, the ark was designed to save people. And unfortunately, only eight people go into the ark and a, and a whole lot of animals. But it was designed to save whoever would come. Now we have, we just going to the last verse. We see here that Noah is discussed. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Would you like to finish our program off today in the last minute? C.O. Mitchell, just to review that and review the chapter, please. I think that that verse will feed over into chapter 6, so I think that I'll end devotionally in saying this. In chapter 5, we see several elements. We see the value that God places on man's life by the Imagio Deo. We see the propagation by means of procreation of the human species. Men are being born. Women are being born every day. We see death all around us, and we see names. What we see hidden in those names is the love of God in the framework of a message, a message carried out through death, a message carried out through new births, through life, through age, through youth. And this is what I'm wondering. I'm wondering, do we hear, do I hear, the voice of God through my circumstances all around me every day? Have I grown a sensitive enough ear to hear when he speaks to me through death, telling me I won't live forever? When he speaks through babies being born, telling me there's the hope of life? When he speaks with tragedy or delight around me, am I sensitive enough, uh, sensitive enough to realize that my muscularity, that my mental prowess, that my socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage 
or my pauper state or my lack of, of, of influence and lack of superior intelligence? Do I hear the messages that are conveyed through that that tell me that I'm frail, that I'm mortal, and that after all of the laboriousness of life, there is rest that God wants to give me. And if I'm not hearing that, then pray God that like Moses says in Psalm 90, I might realize the brevity of life so that I can realize the quality of life and the value that a relationship with the Son of God brings. And I don't think we can miss that message, gentlemen, because historically, 2,000 years ago, this period of time, Pesach, commensurated in Resurrection Weekend argues this, that God gives us messages through death and ultimately through life, namely the death, burial, and resurrection life of the Son of God. And if we will but believe and receive Him in the middle of dead circumstances, we can live courtesy of the grace of God. C.O. Mitchell, John Corr, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Thank you. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week. And to our listeners, uh, we do hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. We will look forward to joining you again next week and moving into Genesis chapter 6. If you need any information on this or any other program in the series, visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management